Good morning. I'm Ron Jackson. My, uh, I'm a, one of the pastors. Of, I am the pastor of counseling. And I also have a new title called Pastor of Belonging. And I'm, basically what I'm finding out about that is it's basically anything Justin doesn't want to do anymore. <laughs> so uh, Justin loves me now. Uh, there's a lot he doesn't want to do anymore, so I'm, I'm real busy. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm using my uh, new uh, 4G phone here. One of the applications is a timer. And uh, uh, we only have so much time we can preach, and then we have to stop. So I thought I'd start it right now. There it goes. I'm on a time limit now. Although my wife reminded me, she says, what if somebody calls during the message? I assure you, I will put it on speakerphone so we can all join in. <laughs> if it's one of my clients, we'll help them. We'll just call this a group session. Uh, we didn't ask today, but does anybody not have a Bible? If you want to borrow a Bible, we have a Bible that the ushers will give to you. And as a bonus, uh, since you want to use a borrowed Bible, let me let you know that today's passage is found on page 728, if you have a borrowed Bible. If you brought your own Bible, go fish. Uh, we're looking at Luke 13, and in this series, we're actually going through a lot of the Proverbs and the stories in Luke. We're trying to go deep into those. And in this passage I picked, when I first read it, I thought, oh boy, I have to work hard. But the more I looked into it, the more I saw some tremendous truth that God had given us here, and I want to read that to you and kind of explain it to you so we can all benefit from it, because I've benefited by looking at it. Uh, the first two stories, and I'll read the scripture in a second here, are um, rather harsh in the way Jesus presents them, or they present it to Jesus, and then Jesus gives her a great message of hope, and that hope is, is so important for all of us. So let's take a look at Luke 13, let's read verses uh, 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish." Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Shalom fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in, the, in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up good ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then it shall bear fruit, and if it shall bear fruit next year, well and good. And if not, you can cut it down. Rather kind of abrupt stories here, except for the uh, one uh, fig tree story. But my wife and I were watching the news a couple nights ago, and it's not a very good thing to do. Uh, but as we're watching the news, one of the things she commented on was 
how obnoxious the reporters were. Uh, there were neighborhood tragedies and things had gone wrong and all that. And his reporters just looked so shocked that when they knocked on somebody's door, you know, that nobody would come to the door and a reporter looks at the camera like, they don't want to talk to me. They don't want to share with me their grief. And it's like, well, who wants to talk to you? In a sense, this is almost what Jesus is dealing with with this story here. As Jesus is proceeding to tell parables and teach the people, around him people begin to grumble about a story of something that had just happened in Jerusalem. And so this is how Jesus confronted some of that. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what went on here? What's this little story all about? Well, the Galileans apparently had come to Jerusalem to sacrifice. Now, there's only one of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament that a Jewish male could participate in, and that was Passover. And at Passover, they take a young, perfect lamb, and they cut its throat, and the blood pours down a trough, and that is for the covering of their sin. Rather dramatic sacrifice. So what happens to get this whole thing done, about a year before this family would go to the temple, they would get a small lamb. The father would then put the children in charge of taking care of this lamb, and they were to raise it. Now, I'm not saying they put it on a leash and made it a pet. Uh, they didn't, you know, maybe call it snowball or, 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 you know, fluffy cake or whatever. It was just a lamb, but the kids were responsible. They had to make sure this lamb didn't get away. They had to keep it clean, and they probably became somewhat attached to it. So the Galileans were going to go up to Jerusalem to sacrifice in the temple square. Now, the Galileans are a unique kind of people. You probably know that the Jews continually rebelled against the Roman leaders. They hated the Romans. They made the word hate even worse. They just hated them tremendously. So of the 40 known rebellions that the Jews did against the Roman uh, conquerors, almost all of them were led by a Galilean. The Galileans just were, you want to have a fight? I want to be in the front. You want to kill somebody? I'll do it. If he's a Roman, I'll do it for free. It was just a bad situation. These guys were the gangbangers of the Middle East. They just hated the Romans tremendously. Now, the Galileans also had a saying that they would use that really offended everybody. The Galileans were known to have said, and this is recorded in some history, if Messiah comes... He's coming from Galilee. Because they believed their Messiah was going to be a warrior who would destroy the Romans and set up the kingdom of God in Jerusalem forever. How interesting that the Galileans were partially right. Jesus was a Galilean. Most of the disciples were Galileans. Remember James and John, they were fighting over who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Galileans, you know, pushing, shoving, my dad's bigger than your dad. Just arrogant, arrogant people. But they also had a unique dress, meaning the clothes they wore looked Galilean. So I can imagine that as these Galileans, who would travel as a group because it was safer that way, would leave their region of Galilee and go up to the temple to sacrifice, 
made the Roman guards a little bit nervous. So as they would come into the temple, these 40 or 50 men, with their sons, with a little lamb, and were all preparing to do this sacrifice and all, maybe some Roman guard somehow saw the knife come out that was to slay the lamb. And maybe somebody yelled, Weapon! And all the Roman guards around the inside of that temple lowered their spears, pulled their swords, and began a slaughter. The Galileans were not focusing on the Romans. They were looking to their children, to the lamb, to the sacrifice they were about to make, and were easily slaughtered. What these people were talking about with Jesus here was, with these Galileans, you know, they're, they're a tough breed. They probably deserved to die, didn't they? Weren't they just really nasty people and that's what should have happened? And Jesus says, well, really? You think these Galileans are worse than anybody else and that's why they died? You know, you better watch out, pal, because you're going to die. Are you ready? And that's what Jesus said. He says, I tell you, unless you repent, change your mind, change your lifestyle, you're going to end up just like the Galileans. And what made this even more tragic for the Galileans was that a sacrifice of the lamb could not have human blood with it. So as they would slice the neck of the lamb and then they were slayed, they fell on the lambs and their blood mingled with that. So not only were they killed, but their sacrifice was for naught. And how many widows in Galilee wept for the fact that their husbands did not come home that day? And that's why it was such a tragedy. Jesus never got into, yeah, Pilate's really a bad guy. Those Romans are bad guys. He just said, Jesus said, this stuff happens. This is a man-made disaster. You just better be ready for you to meet your maker. Don't worry about who's right or wrong. Jesus then goes on and tells his own story. And he says, remember those men at the temple of Shalom? Not the temple, but the tower of Shalom? Eighteen of them were killed. Now it doesn't say how many were wounded, how many were maimed, broken arms, broken legs, a long-term death and all, but 18 innocent people were killed. And Jesus says to them, you're going to argue about were those, were those 18 killed worse than all the other people in Jerusalem? Well, there was a story to be made for that maybe. After all, the, the Tower of Shalom was probably part of a water aqueduct. The Romans were master builders. They basically perfected cement. Thank you for that. I got a lot of Roman stuff in my backyard. Um, so they were perfecting that, and this would have been a very well-surveyed, well-supervised job. These 18 people were probably very good skilled masons and all, but they were killed. Now, why would they be considered worse than anybody else? Well, probably because it was a government job. Secondly, they were being paid by Roman coin with the image of Caesar on it. No Jew wanted that in his pocket. And guess who was in charge of all the public works there in Jerusalem? Pilate. So again, a lot of reason for hatred, a lot of reasons for saying, you made a bargain with the devil, you Mr. Contractor, and you deserve to die on that job because you were working for a terrible person. And Jesus is saying again, stop it. You need to turn your life around. You're going to end up just like him. You're going to die. You better be prepared. Being prepared for the end is hard to do. Being prepared, we don't know when it comes. 
But the people in the temple, they were basically just going to church, and they were slaughtered. For the people at the Tower of Shalom, they were just going to work. Hard hats, lunch buckets under their arms, and they had this terrible tragedy. Kind of like Willie Wise. You may not know about Willie Wise, but Willie and Regina Wise were married for over 20 years. Willie worked for a local oil company not too far from here. 24-year employee, knew the job well, knew the safety precautions, and Regina, his wife, worked at the same place. They'd commute to work, occasionally have lunch together, go home together. Very compatible, very wonderful situation. But just a couple of weeks ago, Willie just jumped on an oil train car like he usually does, a tanker car, releases the brake, and it's going to ride it around at a walking pace to a loading dock. He had done this years and years. And this day, as the train car rounds the corner and heads toward the loading dock, the normal braking system somehow just failed. And within an instant before Willie could do anything different, he was crushed to death between the loading dock and that train car. Not even a time to react because the tolerances were so close. But it's something Willie had done again and again. And that afternoon, someone had to find Regina at the same refinery and say, Regina, today is a different day. Today your husband's not going home with you after all these years. We can thank God, though, that Willie and Regina both knew the Lord. And that does not make the death less painful, but it means they had a resource to do that. Willie was prepared. He had repented. He had lived his life in a way that honored God. We don't know about these poor people at the temple or at the Tower of Shalom. But Jesus says, you know, don't start making distinctions. Who's really bad? Who's really good? Jesus is in a way kind of, you know, pushing back this idea of karma. Oh, you do good things to, to enough and you get good things coming back to you. You do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And Jesus says, baloney to all that. Bad things happen. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that has weeds and thorns and things go wrong. Are the people in Japan worse sinners than us? So they suffered the tsunami? For those of us who lived in Southern California enough, we kind of go, hey, you missed it, God. You should have come this way with that. We got plenty to repent about here in California. Or the people in Joplin, Missouri, who saw half their city wiped out in a matter of minutes? A shock? Were they worse than we were? No. Hopefully they were prepared, though, because Jesus says the solution to these tragedies is basically be ready. Be ready. You do not know when your time is coming. In a sense, like in Psalm 23, we are all walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and we do not know if we'll make it out of that valley alive. Be prepared. But now Jesus, though, gives something very different, a very wonderful parable here that we can find great hope in. So even though it sounds rather abrupt, that these two tragedies and Jesus simply, his response is, repent. Listen now to the story about the vineyard. And Jesus told this parable, Luke 13, 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, 
and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on some manure. Then it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. A fig tree in Scripture is almost always referring to Israel. Although there are times, it's just surprising, fig trees are just a fig tree. But in this particular case, the audience hearing this would have said, fig tree, he's talking about Israel, he's talking about me. And since the, and the church can also, by extrapolation, say, we are just like that fig tree. You and I are like that fig tree. In other words, the story is about us. The owner of the land seems to be God. He's got the vineyard. He's the owner. And he comes expecting fruit. So if you, if you have a fruit tree and you plant a fruit tree, what would you expect a few years down the road? Fruit? Would you expect leaves? Yes, but you'd ignore the leaves. You want the fruit. Um, and that's what the owner of this, of this vineyard wanted. He was expecting fruit for three years. Now, some, in, some interpreters, uh, some people who study this say, the three years represents the three years that Jesus was doing ministry in Jerusalem. See the fig tree, three years of ministry, no fruit. Um, although other commentaries say, nah, that's not it either. So choose your side uh, on that. Um, because there was some fruit. The, you got the disciples, you got the many people that followed Christ. But when God had planted this vineyard, he had certain expectations, and he wasn't getting it. But let's take a look now at the vine dresser. One of the things we have to understand is the owner was pretty much cut and dry. This is my vineyard. I planted fig trees in it. This one's not producing. Cut it down. Let me put something useful there. And the vine dresser, the man who worked in that vineyard, basically said, no. Give me a little more time. Give me one more year to see if I can't coax something living out of this tree. Now, why would the owner probably go to this fig tree? Well, if the fig tree was dead, it would have been brown leaves dying and all that. Nobody would go to a dead tree expecting figs. My suspicion is that when you looked at this whole vineyard of fig trees, that this fig tree looked like just all the rest. On the outside, green, lush leaves, you know, ready to, you know, bear fruit at some point. But when you reached underneath and you looked inside, there was nothing. You know, sometimes I wonder about our own lives. We look good. You look good today. You know, I, all those green leaves out there, you look lush and wonderful. You're in God's vineyard today. You're all planted by Him. But I wonder if we looked inside, under your leaves, what kind of fruit would we find? Raisins? <laughs> Dried up little things? Or maybe nothing at all? What kind of fruit is in there? See, God has an expectation that we do things for Him. I hope that's not a phone call. <laughs> we'll see. So God has expectations for what we're supposed to do, and um, that is to produce fruit. So the vine dresser has hope for us. Jesus has hope for us. And what does it mean? 
It means we need to recognize that one, that fig tree was planted there on purpose. Sometimes in my capacity as a counselor, people will say to me, um, you know, I, I wish I could do more for God, but I can't. My father's an alcoholic. I wish I could do more for God, but you don't understand my parents got divorced. My brother molested me. My, my sister's in jail. Uh, all these bad things happened. Well, guess what? That was the past. This is now. See, what's significant about that? Because to be in God's vineyard is to be transplanted there. Notice this, this fig tree was planted. It was a purposeful decision. When we give our lives to Christ, it doesn't matter where we began. It's where we are now. And you're in God's vineyard. And the vine dresser now is doing some pretty painful things if we're not producing fruit. One, the vine dresser wanted to kind of break up the hard ground around um, this fig tree. You ever feel like God's taking a pickaxe to your feet? <laughs> that you look at your life and kind of go, things are difficult? Things are hard? That's sometimes what it takes to help, this, to help you grow. And then one interesting thing I found here is that the vine dresser says, let me put manure on it. Now, I'm not going to go into a long discussion about manure. This is a G-rated program. But when you think about manure, it's the thing we never want in our shoe, but we always want in our garden. It is the waste. It is the ugly stuff. It smells. We do elaborate things and pay people unusual amounts of money to take it away from our homes, to bury it, to take it away. But to a wise person, manure is the stuff of life. In that manure, in that fodder of the ground, we can find microorganisms and minerals and things that really mean life. And, and God is shoveling this onto our lives sometimes. And we go, I don't want it. But you need to recognize the difficulties that you face are meant to help you produce the fruit God wants to produce in you. What is that fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. People say to me, what can I do to please God? Well, okay, love, joy, peace, patience. And they go, okay, is there another list? I can't do any of those things. Well, there's peace-loving, there's considerate, there's submission, there's full of mercy, there's being, a kind, of, being kind to someone else. All very important things that we can do. But some things hold us back. Some things, when we are planted in this vineyard, we hang on to. If you've ever transplanted anything bigger than a little bush, you know when we pull it out of the ground finally, it's got a ball around the roots. And we're told to be careful of that little ball because you don't want to just take everything away from it, but sometimes we'll discover there's big rocks in it and those have to be removed. And when we look at our own life, what kind of rocks in your life need to be removed? Is that one of the reasons maybe you're not growing as you should? That there are things you're hanging on to. A past history that you feel holds you back. A present habit that seems to distract you. Or things you're hanging on to. Of hanging on to your children for too long. 
in trying to live their life and constantly, constantly spending all your time and resources trying to help your 20, 30, or 40-year-old make it in this world. And you find out, I've spent all my energy into doing it for my kids. Nothing left, nothing left inside. Or maybe it's trying to help a spouse get over their problems and deal with all their difficulties. And you exhaust yourself and you wear yourself out doing that in a little left. Or maybe it's just plain bitterness. You felt like, I wasn't loved as a kid. I wasn't cared for as a child. And I can tell you I hear this so very much in um, what I do in my counseling office. It's not so much they're always trying to blame their parents, but they always start off and say, I had a bent. Look at the bent. I'm going crazy with this bent. I'm growing sideways. I'm not growing straight up. And sometimes those bents basically end up just being part of our character, part of our uniqueness, what God wants us to be. I want you to look inside. You need to be ready because you don't know if your workplace is dangerous or if there's, a, or if there's a man-made disaster happening. You just don't know, and neither do I. But God says, be prepared. Repent or perish. Be prepared. And when we look at this story about the fig in the, in the vineyard, you're there on purpose, you're chosen of God, you're not a mistake to be in the vineyard. But if you're not producing the kind of fruit you know God is calling you to produce, then say, what am I hanging on to so harshly? What about all the difficulties I'm going through? Are those the fingers of the vine dresser breaking up the dirt around my roots so I can depend more on him? What are the things I want to blame that I can't do things because of that? We're going to be going into our garden of prayer here in a moment. And for those of you that don't know what our garden of prayer is, it's just a time of prayer. Uh, our prayer team will take positions up on the side and in the front. And it's an opportunity for you to pray. And I want to encourage you that um, if you feel there are things you need to confess to God, I know you can do it right there, right where you're sitting. Uh, and that's perfectly okay. You've got permission to just stay right where you're at. But for some of you, you'll realize you need to do a little bit more than just have a quiet little quick prayer with God. You need to kind of step out for Him. And I'm going to encourage you to step out and maybe talk to one of the people around the auditorium who are willing to pray with you. They are confidential. They're not going to come back to me and tell me your terrible sins. They will never do that. They will keep what you say privately to them and to God. Some of you may want to just simply come up here and kneel on the steps and, and, and pray and have a private time with God. That's completely acceptable as well. But I want you to look. How fruitful are you in your life? How well do you feel that you are planted in God's vineyard and producing the kind of fruit that God wants you to produce? This is a chance for you to come and say, prune, trim, Break up some of the rocks in my life. Give me a fresh start and a fresh beginning. This is your chance, in a sense, to say, I'm repenting, I am changing my mind, and I'm going to live my life in a different way. I'm going to live it for the vine dresser. I'm going to live it to glorify God. So I'm going to ask that uh, our prayer team members uh, 
find their places around the auditorium. And uh, if we'll all stand. And as the music's being played, you quietly pray where you're at. Or you may um, come forward and pray if you choose to. Uh, This is your time. Don't look around or worry about anybody else. This is your time to say, vine dresser, take my life. Help me to produce the fruit I need to produce. I want to be productive for you. Let me start us off in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do want to grow. We do want to be useful. We do want to know that you have your hand upon us. And as such, we come to you asking for freedom, asking for release from the sins and the habits and the destructive things we think about that we hang on to. Help us not to hang on to them anymore, but to trust in you. Bad things happen, Father, in this world, and yet we are in your vineyard, and we are given a chance to start over again. So, Father, I pray, help us to start over. Help us to give our lives to you and produce the fruit that honors you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you won't come and pray with someone this morning, I encourage you and challenge you.